Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. So, Murphy, we haven't spoken since the early morning hours of Friday in the, the, the blush of the debate. But now, you know, it's always true that you have to wait and see how things settle in a few days before you can really assess what happened. What, what happened doesn't uh, differ that much from, uh, from what we saw. But now we see some numbers on it. There are yep. three different polls that show Joe Biden with like a 10-point drop uh, in support since that debate and a significant boost for Kamala Harris. So you're sitting in the uh, war rooms of these two campaigns, and we'll get to the others in a minute. Uh, what are you thinking? Let's let's start with Biden because I looks looks to me like he's yeah, got that's some the significant big, uh, problems here. Yeah, I would be first of all, I'd be thinking how much whiskey do we have in the hotel because we might need all of it because I think and and the Biden campaign has been sending a tell here. Um, of course, Kamala did very well in the debate, but she also won the media echo chamber afterwards. So now that moves the noise meter of this early polling. It really shows you how untethered everything is. So if I were in the Biden world, I'd be kind of I'd know that was coming. Bad debates get worse in the coverage afterward because everything you did that was good is forgotten. And, and I'd be thinking about, all right, we, we got to make a call here. Can Joe get a lot better? And the tell I'm seeing is they don't think he can. So I would try plan B, the only thing I got left, and I may be wrong about Joe getting better. I'd try anyway, but they don't seem to be doing that. So I would, uh, I would pivot big to foreign affairs, where I'm supposed to be the world yeah. master. Trump's given me a big opportunity with North Korea. I would jump on it and pick a fight on, on my issue and try to change the channel. We should uh, – let me cue up a, a, a little bit of an exchange that uh, Donald Trump had with his new best friend, uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, in North Korea the other day. And then let's get back to the point you just made. And we got to meet, and uh, stepping across that line was a great honor. A lot of progress has been made. A lot of friendships have been made, and this has been in particular a great friendship. So I just want to thank you. That was very quick notice, and I want to thank you. <laughs> Leaving aside the fact that people on your side of the aisle's head would be exploding right now if that was Barack Obama standing next to Kim Jong-un, who has done very little uh, in the way of concessions uh, and called him a great friend, the world's greatest human rights abuser, a uh, uh, you know, a nuclear pirate. Um, pretty remarkable. But forget about that. Why isn't Joe, Joe Biden has been involved in foreign relations and national security issues for 45 years. He uh and he boasts of it, you know, normally he 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 never raised any of these issues, never raised Iran, never raised anything in the debate uh, that I can remember or that was at least memorable about national security. And these things are happening. Why isn't Joe Biden out there kicking Trump's ass on this? You know, I, I don't get it. It is a soft pitch to Biden. Trump is basically playing around with the worst human being in power in the world and some weird bromance where 
I'm now learning that uh, Kim would have been a fantastic New York real estate operator because he's <laughs> rolling Trump around his little finger and we're getting nothing. They're getting legitimacy, which they've craved forever. Right. So it's a huge win for them. I, I, I don't get it. And the, the other bonus for Biden could be if he gets into a foreign policy back and forth and crowds everybody out and plays to his strength and goes after Trump, the common enemy of the Democratic primary, Kamala may be pulled into it. And we know she is not as good on her feet as with the scripted stuff. So it might even expose a weakness there. So it's a, it's a easy double or triple for Biden. And it, it's weird to me they haven't tried it. Well, especially because their whole campaign is premised on he's the guy who can take on Trump. And in fact, in this polling, still right. in this polling, in the CNN polling, I think 41% said he was the guy who could beat Trump. That was uh, leaps and bounds. I think the next person was Bernie in the teens. Uh, Kamala was at 12. Warren was at 12. Uh, so, uh, but but what was interesting in that poll, and I think they may understate Biden's support a little. It's lower than some of the others. Um, he was at 23%, yet 41% said he was the guy who could beat Trump. And two-thirds of the voters say that's the most important Thing to them, so that's a warning sign uh, for him as well. But the fact that he is not out there—I mean, here's the—we we get to give away free advice that, and <laughs> which is you know, as as the saying goes, worth what you pay for it. But either Biden goes out there and runs an aggressive campaign now and shows that he is up to this job, or he's done. I mean, he is a guy who his greatest vulnerability and all the polling I've heard about, seen, all the focus groups I've heard about and seen is age. And they are playing to the notion that he is just not up to this. He didn't look good in the debate. The way you would come back is to come out and look good. I mean, I I know in my experience when we've had bad debates, the first thing we want to do is the next morning get back on the saddle and show people that we can ride. No, that's exactly it. We, we both know the rule is when you're having trouble is the test of the campaign because that's when you double down and take the thing back. And Biden actually has an issue he could go to. And by the way, if Joe will go to stamps.com, we will give him a seven-day campaign plan. But it, this is not a hard one. They should know. And something is holding him back. And again, it might be a tell. It might be that Biden does what Biden wants, and the staff's not able to move him. So they're letting a big one go by at exactly the moment they need something like that. Or I agree. Look, this if you look at that CNN poll, and you know, all these polls, it's so untethered, they're going to bounce around. But the voters just got a big dose of there are people other than Biden in the race on television. About a third of them in the poll said they saw the debate. Among those people, it's a three-way tie in the 20s. Um, so the voters are going to see more of the other people. And very soon, so, this debate with the yeah. holiday uh, intervening, this debate is coming up uh, shortly. So there'll be another chance. So let's turn to Kamala for a second because, um, you know, she had a great night. And she's always been hovering there. People love the concept of Kamala Harris. Uh, she's a great, uh, she's a kinetic personality on TV. She showed that. What she hasn't had is a consistent message. She did in that debate, the 3 a.m. Uh, theme carried through. She seemed to be much more connected with people than she has uh, in the past. But uh, that was all scripted stuff. Uh, in fact, yeah. on one of the ad libs she was called on to to make was to whether or not she would support Medicare for all and the elimination of private insurance. She raised her hand, having been burned on this before, and then once again uh, withdrew 
her support for that idea, said she misheard the question. So uh, she's got to go out and build on this, uh, show that uh, she's got a consistent message, add, uh, you know, support points to it, and uh, and and hopefully react within the context of that message uh, when she gets asked questions that she's not uh, expecting. But, you know, yeah. she, I mean, she is a plausible nominee. Uh, oh, look, I think so. She's going to get a tremendous boost. But with that comes risk, more examination. And you're right, to date, when she flies without a net, she's been getting in trouble. And there are going to be more things like that. I also saw something in the CNN crosstabs that was interesting to me. One of the questions they ran was, you know, who's best on what big issue, the economy, et cetera, et cetera. She was running a week fourth on every issue but race relations where she totally owned it. So she's got to go from that's not a bad thing to be in a Democratic primary as it heads south, but she's got to be more than a one-hit record yeah, there. You also got to get out of the early right. primaries. I mean, a poll just came in from Iowa, no small matter, because I really don't, don't think there's going to be unlimited tickets out of Iowa, and anyone who's going to win is going to be in that top three, and maybe the top two uh, in Iowa. And this Suffolk USA Today poll shows Kamala Harris surging. Uh, uh, Joe Biden at still leading at 24%, followed by Harris at 16, Warren at 13, and Bernie Sanders, uh, who uh, almost took Iowa in 2016, uh, his people would say he did, at, at 9%. And so here's their key takeaway. Harris saw her support more than double compared to the June poll to 16% from 7%. She was chosen as the second choice of 17%, which is uh, important in Iowa because of the way caucuses work. Being a second choice is not it's not just a consolation prize. You could end up with delegates. Yeah, it's good. If yeah. uh, if your if your opponents can't uh, put together the 15%. So they're Tagline here is when first and second choices were combined, Biden only narrowly edged Harris thirty-five to thirty-three. I mean, you know, she's having a she's having a good week, having a run, and and we'll see if she can sustain it. That's the whole key because these polls are really the debate review poll, but it's shuffled the race, and it means the next debate, if she can crush a second time. She's going to put herself in an incredibly strong position in the nomination race. And if Biden doesn't have that comeback with Biden 2.0 and show something, again, I, he may not make it to uh, Thanksgiving. And she may because she's got oh, those yeah. prosecutorial skills. And somebody else, Elizabeth Warren headquarters is having meetings, I'll bet you, and Buddha Judge and others, Corey, they, they got to do something because if they let her keep running up the score with her persona and she can do more debates and sustain it without a net every day in the media cycle, big if. But if she can, she, she's going to be in a dominant position by the end of the summer. And her people say Iowa. she's headed to Iowa and she's going to spend a lot of time there. So I know she's there this weekend. I have said before, I, I think she has to finish top three, maybe higher, in order to uh, activate the right. the support she has uh, in places like South Carolina, and yeah, so, no, no catapult, no momentum. That's yeah, the so hard she, lesson. She's got, so many she's got to put some meat on the bone, but she's got a great potential. The two other, you know, uh, we talked about Biden, Bernie. I don't think helped himself in uh, in this debate. I mean, and I think they both have the problem that maybe they can't address. And people will write in and call me an ageist. Uh, but I'm getting up there myself, so I think I have a, some authority to speak about this. Um, those guys, 
looked old in that debate. Yeah. There were times when they were both leaning forward to try and hear the question. And, um, you know, it felt a little like open mic night at the assisted living center. And yeah, that is Bernie, not uh, going, that is not a good look. That is not a good look. And, you know, Bernie has a devoted following and I give him all the credit in the world. He's said the things he's said for half a century. He has, he's, he's been, uh, you know, uh, a guy of uh, solid uh, beliefs and views and rhetoric. And, uh, as such, very authentic He's very smart. He's he is he is he is frankly more agile at this point on his feet than Biden is, uh, but nonetheless, you know, appearances are appearances. Yeah, he doesn't only look old; he feels stale because we've seen it all before. There, there's nothing new, um, and so he he has that base. Looks like he's going to report another eighteen million, respectable number for the quarter if it's true in the fundraising. But he, I don't see a lot of capacity to grow there, and as the others. You know, the Elizabeth Warrens and the extent she's going into that territory, and it looks to me like she is uh, Kamala Harris, move in. He's got new competition, and uh, I don't think that's going to favor him. Yeah, in the uh, in the CNN poll, Biden continues to have a big lead among uh, white non-college uh, educated voters, and he continues to have a big lead among moderate and conservative Democrats, which is half the party. You know, there's this sense that the party's drifting left. We'll talk about it in a second. Uh, but half the voters in the Republic, in the Democratic primary describe themselves as moderate or conservatives. He's getting 31% of that vote. Uh, and uh, uh, Kamala is second at 11, Warren at 10, Bernie at 8, Buttigieg at 4. Among liberal voters, voters who describe themselves as liberal, the other half, uh, 12% for Biden, 24% for Harris. So she doubles him, uh, 20 and 20 for Warren and Sanders. Uh, So uh, the question is, if he unravels, can, can he hold on to that vote? Uh, that right. uh, and uh, you know he, the other half of his vote are African Americans and that's in real jeopardy here. It's much closer among uh, among non-white voters than it had been uh, before. But can he hold on to that vote? And if he unravels there, who's the beneficiary of it? Yep, that's the billion-dollar question. I, I think that big hunk of vote that Joe has is his opportunity to do well, but he's squandering it. And I just don't know if. Biden can fix Biden because nobody else can. So if he does unravel, and it could happen pretty quickly, it could be a very new race by the end of the summer. There's a huge opening for somebody to have the guts to stand up on uh, on the progressive and be the other option. And none of them have taken it yet. For some reason, they're all, you know, maybe Bennett to some extent, but they're all intimidated by the by the progressive energy. And that's a huge mistake. There's going to be a lot of votes open to another version of, uh, you know, kind of a meat and potatoes Democrat. And Biden looks so wobbly. Uh, that's the big strategic question, I think, for a lot of the other candidates. Buttigieg may have had an opportunity there as well. He got good marks yeah, for the Amy. debate, but no movement in the polling. And I have to wonder whether the evenness of – I always felt like the evenness of his personality was a great contrast with Trump, but in a party that is 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 in a, you know – in a in a feisty mood, or at least with those voters who are in a feisty mood, uh, maybe uh, maybe a disadvantage. He does have, however, uh, a pension for raising uh, money. Ula, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, impressive. Twenty five million dollars. Uh, that is an, an enormous, eye popping 
amount of money that he announced. Uh, we haven't heard from Biden yet, as you mentioned, Bernie in the 18 million, very respectable. We haven't heard from Warren and Harris yet, but they almost certainly are going to be lower than um, than uh, than that. So, uh, what does all that money mean? Well, it, for Buttigieg, they've, they've also done a good job of not spending a lot. It's almost all cash. He's sitting on twenty. I don't know if that's bucks, a good so. job, by the way. I mean, at, at some point, well, you have early to, field, yeah. you have to spend it to uh, to succeed. You know, Elizabeth Warren has a huge burn rate. She also has the best organization in Iowa because she spent early on the organization. That could end up redounding to her benefit. So, um, you know, I, I my advice to the Buttigieg campaign is. Very impressive showing. Now spend some of that money, build My the organization guess, you need. Yeah, no, I think that's their plan. I mean, I, I, we could argue a little bit about when the start date for the big spend is, but he's now got the money, so that's a moot question. He can do it. His problem is, you know, it, there's not a cross tab in the polling like this, but if there would, he dominate it. High SATs from elite <laughs> colleges. He's got that vote wrapped up, and you can see it in the finance report. The problem is, can he get out of that, what I call, and I'm an admirer of his in many ways, but that costume of the tie and the shirt where he looks like junior management. You go into Black Hawk County in Iowa uh, with that vibe, he's he's not going to break through. So we, we need, on the message side, now that he's got the money, Pete's already proven he's a genius, super smart. Now we got to see the heart, and we got to see him connecting with voters who did not go to an elite college. And look, he he may well be able to do it. He got a lot of those votes in South Bend, Indiana, but uh, it's not been on the campaign trail yet. And that's the job for them to break through. By the way, among these college-educated voters, uh, in at least in this uh, CNN poll, and again, you know, it's one poll. Uh, I I'm, I'm looking at the cross tabs here among college-educated voters in this latest poll. Uh, Harris is at 23, Biden 18, uh, Warren is at 20. So Biden's in third among college-educated voters, Sanders at 11, and uh, Buttigieg at 6. So, um, you know, even with those voters, he has to uh, he has to break through. And, and Kamala Harris took a big leap with these voters in this debate. So um, he's got his work cut out for him. Let me ask you this. Um, we we talked a little bit about this the last time, and you know you're a kind of you're a crazy uh, right guy, or at least you oh, used totally. to be. Now you're a moderate. But when no, I no, met no, you, I, when I met you, <laughs> no, you were I'm, like the gold standard for crazy right wing Republicans. I am still a conservative. That's yeah, one man. of the reasons I don't like Trump. But anyway, fire okay, away. Let, let me I, add one I, thing I will on the vouch for you, note. but I don't think my my <laughs> vouching for you is going to help you with your friends on the uh, on the right. But but the the issue is this: um, there are a lot of moderate uh, Democrats who were concerned about the tone of that debate, and particularly about three issues. One is the Medicare for all, eliminating private insurance. Um, three of the top running candidates, uh, Warren Sanders, and at least for the evening, uh, Harris said they supported that. And then on the immigration issue, you know, Julian Castro, who we're going to talk to in just a few minutes, uh, he started something by saying, uh, by challenging Beto O'Rourke for not supporting the decriminalization of border crossings from a criminal offense, a misdemeanor, but a criminal offense to a uh, a civil offense. And then uh, the next night, everyone was asked if they agreed, and every single person uh, on the platform, I believe, 
raised their hand that this change should be made. And the reason, obviously, is that Trump has abused uh, this to, uh, uh, in a way that no other president has uh, to effectuate the separation of families and to inflict as much pain uh, as possible. So the intent is good. But uh, I think if you poll on these issues... Uh, that oh uh, completely that the, the, that in a general election certainly and maybe among some moderate Democrats these are not uh, winning issues uh, the same you know, is, same true. is true as pr- of providing health care for undocumented uh, uh, people the, this was a big debate when we passed the Affordable Care Act we passed it almost all with Democratic votes but uh, could not include coverage for undocumented. It, it just it was not a non-starter. Well, um, that's the problem in primaries. The incentives are always, oh, we got to get through this, you know, gauntlet tomorrow morning among Democratic primary voters who are all going to vote for a bag of cement with a D on it. They're not swing voters, and you know they don't lean at all toward Trump. So you're, you're chasing the easy calories. But there's some data out showing a lot of Republicans watch this debate, and a lot of other kind of unaffiliated voters. So. You know, I keep applying what I call my PML test. Pasco County in Florida, Macomb County in Michigan, and Luzerne County, mm-hmm. Wilkes-Barre, Scranton area in Pennsylvania. Were any bells rung there that might shave Trump's big numbers down a little? You're not going to win those places, but if you heard them there, you know, moving one of those voters is worth five more voters in San Francisco that don't matter because you're going to win California anyway, and the electoral numbers are aren't going to change. And they're, they're making the predictable mistake of playing like in a primary, I get it, to the voters they already have. But we Republicans, we're going to hammer the hell out of any candidate. Um, I, I tweeted something about this. Somebody said, oh, no, you know, Kamala's going to go great. And I said, well, do a walking tour of those counties with a big sign, Kamala Harris or any of the others for president, um, you know, free health care for people here illegally, Open borders, walk over, no, no criminality. I mean, it it is it is music to Trump's ears, and that's why again there are a bunch of even Democratic voters who might resonate the other way, but nobody's making the case. They're just leaving it wide open, well, and it's trouble. Well, let's take that up with our guest, uh, Julian Castro, the former mayor of San Antonio, the former Secretary of Housing and Urban. Development. He had a great night in that. Uh, you know, debates are all about moments, he, and yep. he created one when he uh, when he went after Congressman O'Rourke on this very issue. Julian Castro, so good to good to hear from you. Uh, you 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 lit the joint up last week uh, and made a lot of news. Uh, tell me. Uh, what you did to prepare for that debate? What was your strategy going in that debate? Because clearly the point you raised that got all the attention was one that you had given a lot of thought to. Well, going into debate, I, uh, I knew that I had to introduce myself to a lot of people who hadn't heard of me. My name ID has been lower than several of the other candidates in the race. And uh, that debate was easily going to be the biggest audience we would have so far in the campaign cycle. So I wanted to make sure that I introduced myself and had a chance to talk about my vision for the future of the country. Uh, and of course, in these debates, especially with 90 people on the stage, the only way to do that effectively is to be able to drill down and you know convey your message in one minute. Uh, and you're also, of course, at the mercy of the moderators because 
uh, they're the ones controlling what topics come up. And, you know, I was just glad that I had a chance to touch on, uh, you know, immigration, but also a couple of, a couple of other issues that, uh, that people really care about. Well, the drilling down that you did was, uh, it felt like you were drilling right into the forehead of Beto O'Rourke there. Uh, and, you know, one of the ways you get known in a, or seen in a debate is when there is some conflict, when there is some uh, back and forth. You saw that with uh, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden uh, the following night. So you must have had a strategy to confront him there. Well, I mean, I had a strategy for sure on what I wanted to say on immigration. I knew that it would come up and I had a you know, decent sense that they might ask me the first question on that because I was the first one to release an immigration plan. And, you know, we've made that a, a significant part of the campaign. So I figured one way or another, whether I got the question first or, or got it second or whatever, that I was going to have an opportunity to talk uh, about that. And once I did, I wanted to make my, my position clear. Uh, on top of that, I knew that I wanted to challenge the folks on the stage who hadn't agreed with me on that particular repeal of the law of Section 1325 of the Immigration Nationality Act. I wanted to challenge everybody who hadn't said that they agreed with me to, to actually agree. And uh, that's when we got into that exchange. So I, I watched that and I thought it was a master class in how to take control of a debate. But I have to admit, my old Republican campaign years were starting to twitch because I thought, OK, I get the Democratic primary politics here. But when you roll into a general election, I mean, let's uh, let's do the best case scenario for you. You win the nomination. You're there in the general election in Ohio or Michigan or Pennsylvania uh, in a room that's looking at you thinking, I'm not so sure about that. It'll be able to walk across the border and be, have it be decriminalized. What's your general election answer not to get just crushed on the topic? Because everybody well, followed you in this. On, on, on the next night, everybody followed you on yeah. this. So you, you, they, you are the leader uh, on this particular issue. So just setting up Mike's question. Yeah, well, that we, we're going to maintain border security. We still have 654 miles of fencing. We have thousands of personnel at the border. We have planes, uh, helicopters, boats. We have security cameras, guns. Uh, states like Texas contributed an extra, extra $800 million for border security. So, you know, we still have a border that is going to be secure. And uh, just because we're treating something as a civil matter, not a criminal one, doesn't mean that people are not still subject to a court process. People are still in a court process. And this is the way that we used to do it. It's not anything radical. It's the way that we did it from the late 20s until about 2004. And so we're going back to the way that we used to do it. It's necessary to go back to the way that we used to do it, because that's going to help reduce the backlog of people who are waiting here in limbo until they can get their uh, asylum claim uh, determined, or if they're undocumented, they get an answer on what's going to happen. It's also important because this is the way we're going to guarantee that little children don't get separated from their families. So for people that are, you know, they wonder, look, is this open borders? Uh, nobody's talking about open borders. We're going to maintain border security, but we're going to do it in a smarter, more effective, and more humane way. You know, Julian, uh, um, I thoroughly embrace the spirit of that. And uh, but the show is called Hacks on Tap, and so we're we're asking you really a hackish question, which is given the fact that the president 
has made this open borders thing, uh, you know, clearly uh, part of a uh, central part of his campaign and campaign attack. Um, it is less about the substance of this than the symbolism of it. The ability for opponents to say he wants to decriminalize uh, border crossing. That's only going to invite more people uh, to cross the border and create less accountability. That's how that I think, Murphy, am I right about this? This is how the attack is going to come, oh, only, be only totally with a Trumpian twist. Yep, that's exactly it. <laughs> no, yeah, I get that. I'm just betting that, and I believe people want honesty and they want a bold vision on the other side that there are enough people that you can draw into the fold and and even some folks who initially may have a concern about that that can be persuaded uh i don't think that we're going to beat him on the issue as probably as we saw in 2016 i don't think that we're going to beat him on the issue by sort of squirming about it and trying to say well you know we're still gonna you know people want directness they want honesty they want to feel like even if they disagree with you that uh, you you know what you're doing and you have a strong plan and a bold vision of your own uh and that's what i have let me uh ask a a micro hack question here back to Hmm. the debate and out of this highfalutin policy stuff what is it like when you go into debate, knowing you're low in the polls and you kind of have to score? What What are the theatrics like that we don't see on TV? There, you're trying, you're waving, you're trying to get eye contact. I mean, what What was your kind of just uh, debate diary of what it was like to stand up there and and uh, and all that? What's the green room like beforehand? Just give us a little inside look. Yeah, I mean, my biggest concern going into it wasn't even that I would necessarily fall flat. Or, Of course, we've seen spectacular examples of politicians like Rick Perry a few years ago that have had, or Dan Quayle in 88, that had these moments that nobody would want to uh, live through on a debate stage. But my biggest concern was that I just wouldn't get the amount of time it was necessary for me to establish myself. And because my name ID is already lower, uh, look at what happened, for instance, to a couple of the candidates the next night. Um, you know, just as one example, I think Andrew Yang got like three minutes or three and a yes. half minutes in yeah. the debate. If that happens to you, then your ability to make your case, uh, to get any momentum, any traction is just severely injured. That was my biggest concern going in. And I have to give the moderators credit. Uh, I was wondering whether they were going to enforce time limits. If they didn't enforce time limits, that's a problem because then, as y'all know, when people start to usurp the whole conversation and it forces folks to start talking above each other, they were pretty good about actually enforcing time limits. And to the credit of, of you know, my fellow um, candidates, uh, colleagues out there, people were pretty, pretty good at abiding by those time limits as well. That helps everybody get a chance to make their case. Although I must say, when you had your back and forth with Beto, uh, they let it run because they saw good TV uh, when they, you know, they, they, they knew, you know, and that, that was really, that was really an advantage. If you're good TV, no director is going to say, all right, let's uh, cut this off right now. They're, they had high drama, high, high drama Love going it. there. Yeah. So well, I, go ahead, X. I was just going to ask quickly how your life changed the next day. Could you tell other than people telling you you did well, phone calls starting to get returned or what was the sign? How, yeah, how did your kind of candidate instinct fire off? All, 
all of a sudden people are returning your call that you called two <laughs> months ago and texting you and, uh, you know, more media covering people, you know, some of the shows that we've been saying, Hey, look, can I get on there? All of a sudden, Oh, where can we take you on? And, uh, and also on TV with that much exposure, you know, whoever you are, more people recognize you out there and all of that kind of stuff. I actually didn't get to sleep that night. Um, I didn't get to sleep afterward and then I had to wake up early for interviews the next day and did that. And I finally got like an hour and a half of sleep at about two o'clock in the afternoon the next day. But of course it was worth it. I'll take it. Yeah. I bet your brother's getting recognized more often too. Just not as himself, but uh, yeah. Well, now, you know, he was at that Clint detention facility yesterday. Yes, I saw that. uh, He took that video of the conditions inside and now, but on Twitter, you know, uh, like twenty five percent of the people are thanking me for taking that video. I have to tell. I didn't. It's, it's, a, fu- it's a force multiplier. You know that twin brothers. Um, so <laughs> well, he should go to New Hampshire. You go to Iowa. Not tell anybody for about three months. <laughs> Obviously, it's secret here on the podcast. <laughs> Obviously, um, getting um, this attention also translates into money, and it came at a propitious time because you had a filing due. I don't think you've dropped your number. Uh, yet, but what happened to your money in the uh, hours after that debate? Oh well, of course it went through compared to what we've been raising before. You know, we had our four, and now I guess five. Well, four best days in a row uh, after that. Uh, so we raised a, a lot afterward, and we're going to release our numbers in in a couple of days. Uh, you know, still going to don't want to raise expectations. I mean, compared to what some of the other candidates are going to report, I'm still going to be um, well behind them. But I did a lot better in the second quarter than I did in the first. And what are you going to do with uh, with that? How do you build on this? Because you are down there sort of with the one percenters, two percenters um, and time. You know, it's early, but it's getting later. How do you build on that in a way that actually translates into a viable candidacy? Well, maybe the most, the two most important things that we've seen polls that have come out since then uh, have been that my favorability jumped by about 20 points. You know, 538 did three different polls on three consecutive days that gauged the impact of the debates for all of the, all of the candidates. And I had the largest jump in favorability. Uh, I also had a good jump in name ID and in the percentage of people who believe that I can take on Donald Trump. This is actually, this is maybe the most important point. I think the most important thing that I came away with from the debate was, goes to the anxiety that voters today have about the Democratic nominee. They have an anxiety about whether Trump is going to run all over our nominee in the fall of 2020 on the debate stage. And so the people that I think did the best in those two nights are those folks that assured, uh, you know, assuaged the fears of primary voting Democrats about an ability to take on Trump. And the ones that seem not to be able to handle the moment, I think, hurt themselves the most. So the polling so far reflects that more people believe that I can carry that out. Uh, And, you know, we're starting to see good polling. Uh, Univision just released a poll where I've moved into second place with Hispanic voters at 18% of the vote, which is significant. So uh, my plan is just to capitalize on this momentum in terms of media attention, staffing up, uh, investing in digital fundraising and building our list. 
just all of the blocking and tackling that you got to do to keep building the campaign and take it step by step. The next thing we got to do is make sure that we qualify for the September debate uh, by August 28th. We got to get four polls where we got 2%. I think that we'll be able to do that. Um, we're at about 115,000 unique donors right now. So obviously going to be able to surpass 130,000 unique donor threshold for the September debate. All of that is positive. And, you know, I'm just, I'm staying positive and I'm taking it just one day and one step at a time to get stronger and stronger in the campaign. Well, you got another chance in Detroit in a few weeks on the CNN debate and uh, everybody will be watching to see what you have up your sleeve this time to, uh, <laughs> to persuade the director to keep their cameras on you. Yeah, who's going to get the better treatment? I'm curious. <laughs> uh, Julian Castro, so good to uh, be with you on uh, Hacks on Tap, and we will be uh, looking toward that next debate and future conversations. Thanks for dropping in. Thanks a lot, Axe, and thanks, Mike. You know, Axe, I've often done debates where the candidate thinks they didn't do so well, and they come off into the staff room and say, I was robbed. Well, it's not just a problem for them. It's a problem for a lot of people. A recent Gallup survey shows Americans worry more about burglary than almost any other crime. Here's something I didn't know. Most break-ins happen between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. During the daytime, they must have a union or something. I always thought it was all at night. So this is oh, something so I'm going to be right back. Concerned. I just got to run home and check something. I'll, I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. So, no, absolutely. And uh, the FBI says the average loss in a burglary is over $2,000. That can be hard to recover from. There are over 2 million burglaries reported every year. That's one every 13 seconds. So if all these stats haven't gotten the message across, let's make clear that you need Simply Safe. And Simply Safe protects your whole house. Every window, room, and door, that shifty neighbor, they're not going to sneak in because it gives you a 24-7 whole house monitoring system. And the police dispatch is up to 3.5 times faster because they use video verification. There's no contract hidden fees or fine print. It's a pretty good thing. It's designed to blend right into your home. No wires, no drilling. It's easy to order and easy to set up, usually in under an hour. Simply Safe has won a ton of awards. Prices are always fair and honest. Around-the-clock monitoring is just $15 a month. Free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. You've got nothing to lose. So go now and be sure you go to simplysafe.com slash hacks so they know that our show sent you. And Axe and I may go out and pull a few jobs here in the next two days, so move quick. That's simplysafe.com slash hacks. Okay, man, let's reach into the mailbag and see what uh, folks have been saying. And I have to say, Murphy, you created quite a stir last week with one of your comments and I'm going to let you uh, explain yourself. Uh, Morgan <laughs> writes in and says, did you really say a female candidate needed to smile more? Are you saying the male candidate smiled enough? And this question results from your comment uh, in our post-debate show uh, in which you said that Elizabeth Warren uh, needed to smile more. So I'm just going to sit back and let <laughs> you explain. Well, thank you, Morgan. Good to know the woke police are on the job and clever move with the gender neutral name. So I'll tell you what I think because I, I say this a lot. I tell anybody in the debate on television at the right time to smile and relax. You're a guest in people's living room and viewers want to know you're confident and having a good time. So that is gender neutral advice. I did single out Warren because I watched a bunch of her material with the sound turned off, a trick I highly recommend. And there was a grim intensity to part of it. 
when she warmed up a little, like she did in her excellent closing statement, she used television better. So I'm not trying to enter the gender wars here. I'm trying to talk about how professionals watch people on television try to communicate in politics. And even though uh, I'm a right winger and she's not my favorite, I gave her a free tip. It actually is a good tip, but it's also true that men don't generally get that uh, get that advice, or at least not as as frequently. So, but anyway, go ahead. So, Marcus has a question for David specifically. Which one of your former staffers working on a current campaign is impressing you? We don't hear about the nuts and bolts of the operation on television. Let me tell you, uh, one of the most gratifying things to me is to see all these people who are my colleagues. Some of them I. Uh, you know, I would call, well, protégés, but uh, not necessarily this group, but they're all spread throughout these Democratic campaigns. In this last debate, uh, my old Obama debate team was split up into many different units, but Jim Margolis, uh, our fine media consultant, was, uh, was there with Kamala Harris. Obviously, they did very good work. Joel Benenson, the pollster, and his uh, partner, Katie Connolly, and uh, Larry Grizzolano, who bought my old firm 10 years ago, were with Mayor Pete. and He had a good performance. Uh, I also want to uh, sing- single out a couple of other people. Joe Rospars, uh, who was our social media uh, guru uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the Obama campaigns, uh, is very, very much instrumental in the Elizabeth Warren campaign, and they've done a, a really good job uh, on social and generally, and uh, I'm not surprised to see Joe in the middle of that. Uh, and Adisu DeMessi, uh, who is running the Booker campaign, uh, is really, really one of the great campaign managers uh, I've seen. And uh, while it hasn't shown up in the polling yet, the work they're doing in Iowa is giving Booker a possibility if this thing breaks up in the right way for him. So uh, all of those people are uh, alumni of the uh, uh, of the Obama campaigns, and I think they're bringing all that experience to bear. And I'll be I'll be watching them and others as this thing goes on. Uh, anyway, uh, let us move on. Uh, there was a question from Aaron who asks, I was wondering if you think Amy Klobuchar has any chance of winning the nomination and what she would need to do to win it. I think people focus on electability, uh, who focus, you left out the who, I think people who focus on electability are mistakenly not paying attention to her, given her extraordinary election record. Mike, do you think the same conservatives like yourself would be okay voting for her in the general, and what would her chances be against Trump? Well, I've said early that I think on paper she could be a very formidable general election candidate, but she needs to have a primary strategy that would also help that and help her in the primary where I don't see her doing a lot at this early stage to help herself. So if she would be the anti-Warren on economics and grab that more center Democratic lane, which she could have all to herself, it could come into an interesting contest where it boils down to Warren, Kamala, and her, three women making history. That center appeal that she has used in Minnesota would make her more formidable in the general election. Now, that's not an easy road in a Democratic primary, but beats the no road strategically that she seems to be on right now. Maybe she'll find it. And yeah, I'm look, I'm not happy with any of the Dems. I'm a right winger, but I think Trump is unfit for office. So I might have to pick somebody and I'd be more comfortable with her than a lot of the others. And what we care about is your comfort, Mike. 
So uh, <laughs> that, that's the real reason I, for the Democratic I, Party. I've been waiting for them to catch on to that. I mean, there is something to it because if we can get wingnuts like you to vote a de- for a Democrat, that would be that would certainly portend a, a result, a positive result for Democrats. On, in terms of Klobuchar, um, you know, I think she missed an op- opportunity in the debate. She was fine, uh, and she's got a great wit, and she showed it. Uh, but she needs to more forcefully make the case you're making. She hints at it. She hints at the right. the, the fact that she is a uh, center-left candidate, uh, and she boasts of her electoral record in Minnesota, where she's done very, very well in a state that uh, you know can be closely contested. Um, all of that is uh, is positive, but she needs to be more forceful. Uh, in this next debate. And obviously, she needs to pull off a surprise in Iowa uh, yep. because she's from Minnesota. Her campaign is predicated on being from the region there and being able to talk to the region. So uh, she's another person who I think has to be top three or go home. And she and- needs a, a, some, I mean, her FDC report is probably going to be nothing special. And she's going to get teared down in the in the race from where she started. So she's running out of time to find some space in the primary to go, you know, a corner to fight. There's a good David Brooks column about that opportunity uh, that just came out. She, she she ought to take the risk. She's risk adverse, but now is the time in her career to take some risk because the risk free approach, she's going to get muscled out by the others. So here's a new feature of our uh, program, and and we should point out that uh, before I get to it that. If you have questions, uh, please send them to us at uh, hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. You guys are sending great questions, and um, and we, we, we want to field as many as we can. So please send them. So this is this is what uh, I want where I want to go. We have to have a last call section so we can freely rant about whatever <laughs> is on our mind if we haven't done that already. Uh, but this July fourth is coming up on Thursday. A great, you know, Independence Day. Great, wonderful occasion for us to remember, uh, you know, the valor that led to our independence and particularly the values. Uh, that animated uh, the revolution that created this wonder, this American uh, democracy. Uh, but the president wants to brand it uh, and hang Trump on this thing uh, in a way no other president ever has. He's going to be uh, speaking at the Lincoln Memorial, and he's ordered up tanks and planes and wants to turn it into a you know, North Korean-style uh, or Russian-style military uh, event and it, and it's just it's 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 awful uh, and um, I guess he feels like this will by by ba- uh, bathing himself in all of this he will uh, look like the the strong American leader but once again he's doing it by sort of trampling American traditions in a way I find really distasteful but I, I may be missing something here. Well, I want to talk about a bunch of Eurocentric BS called the metric system, David. I've been cranky, but no, no, I I couldn't agree more. Trump thinks he's Juan Perón. I mean, he's going to, you know, there's a uniform tailor in the White House somewhere working on some ridiculous doorman at a hotel outfit for him. But it's no joke. Look, our, our tanks, you know who should see our tanks? Our enemies. And we don't do this militaristic stuff. We, we love our citizen soldiers. 
Um, we celebrate them, but not not in a cult of personality way, like some tin pot dictator or his new, you know, bromance buddy in North Korea. Maybe he'll lend us a few tanks uh, uh, to just crown it off. So the problem was, you know, he went to the Bastille Day uh, in France and he saw the the military parade they do in, in a different context, by the way, than the fourth. And he got all excited and said, why can't I have one of those? It's the peril of a toddler president. And here we are again with uh, this silliness. Apparently, I read in the paper, he's been getting like daily updates. You know, he's like picking which tank and everything. No, he got that confused. Um, yes. It's just, you it's see, just, he said, we, we've got n- the new Sherman tank. That <laughs> yeah, from 1944. Yeah, Right, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's comedy, but it's also depressing and hopefully an aberration because this is not not who we are as a country, particularly on the 4th where you're the head of state. You're not a hack politician wanting a Juan Perón ego parade. So rev up our folks here uh, one more time and uh, tell them what they can do to help promote Hacks on Tap and put Hacks on Tap on top. Oh, well, I will happily do that. We are growing in listenership, and we thank you for that. We're enjoying doing this, and we hope you're enjoying listening. You can help us by going on your favorite podcast platform. Take iTunes, for example, which is the largest but not the only one, and rate us. Give us some stars. You don't like us, you can give us one star. Like us a lot, give us five. Write a review. Um Correct me on other gender insensitivity flaws, whatever you want. We do want to hear from you, but participate in the ability to give feedback because when you do that, we are able to get our our hacks on tap messaging, as we'd say in a campaign, spread around. The other thing you can do on iTunes, a little button, you can email an episode to a friend, try to get them hooked on it. So lots of stuff you can do. But most of all, we just appreciate your tuning in and listening to us. Happy 4th, brother. Talk to you on the other side. God bless America. See you soon.